Section fourteen of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one War Part fourteen. Cato the Censor has been called the last of the old Romans. That class of patriot farmers had been extinguished by Hannibal's invasion. In order to live during the long war, they had been obliged to borrow money on their lands. When the war was over, the prices of everything rose to an unnatural height. The farmers could not recover themselves, and the Roman law of debt was severe. They were rejected by thousands. It was a favourite method to turn the women and children out of doors while the poor man was working in the fields. Italy was converted into a plantation. Slaves in chains tilled the land. No change was made in the letter of the Constitution, but the Commonwealth ceased to exist. Society was now composed of the nobles, the money merchants or city men, and a mob like that of Carthage which lived on saleable votes, sometimes raging for agrarian laws, and which was afterwards fed at government expense like a wild beast every day. At this time, a few refined and intellectual men began to cultivate a taste for Greek literature and the fine arts. They collected libraries and adorned them with busts of celebrated men and with antiques of Corinthian bronze. Crowds of imitators soon arose, and the conquests in the East awakened new ideas. In the days of old, the Romans had been content to decorate their doorposts with trophies obtained in single combat, and their halls with the waxen portraits of their ancestors. The only spoils which they could then display were flocks and herds, wagons of rude structure, and heaps of spears and helmets. But now the arts of Greece and the riches of Asia adorned the triumphs of their generals, and the reign of taste and luxury commenced. A race of dandies appeared who wore semi-transparent robes, and who were always passing their hands in an affected manner through their hair, who lounged with the languor of the Sybarite, and spoke with the lisp of Alcibiades. The wives of senators and bankers became genteel, kept a herd of ladies' maids, passed hours before their full-length silver mirrors, bathed in asses' milk, rouged their cheeks and dyed their hair, never went out except in palanquins, gabbled Greek phrases, and called their slaves by Greek names, even when they happened to be of Latin birth. The houses of the great were paved with mosaic floors, and the painted walls were works of art. Sideboards were covered with gold and silver plate, with vessels of amber and of the tinted Alexandrine glass. The bathrooms were of marble, with the water issuing from silver tubes. New amusements were invented, and new customs began to reign. An academy was established, in which five hundred young boys and girls were taught castanet dances of anything but a decorous kind. The dinner hour was made later, and instead of sitting at table, they adopted the style of lying down to eat on sofas inlaid with tortoiseshell and gold. It was chiefly in the luxuries of the cuisine that the Romans exhibited their wealth. Prodigious prices were paid for a good Greek cook. Every patrician villa was a castle of gastronomical delight. It was provided with its salt-water tank for fish and oysters, and an aviary which was filled with field fairs, ortolans, nightingales, and thrushes, a white dovecote, like a tower, stood beside the house, and beneath it was a dark dungeon for fattening the birds. There was also a poultry ground, with peafowl, 
guinea fowl, and pink feathered flamingos imported from the east, while an orchard of fig trees, honey apples, and other fruits, and a garden in which the trees of cypress and yew were clipped into fantastic shapes, conferred an aspect of rural beauty on the scene. The hills around the Bay of Naples were covered with these villas, and to that charming region it became the fashion to resort at a certain season of the year. In such places gambling, drinking, and love-making shook off all restraints. Black-eyed soubrettes tripped perpetually about with billets doux in Greek. The rattle of the ivory dice-box could be heard in the streets like the click of billiard-balls in the Parisian boulevards, and many a boat with purple sails and with garlands of roses twined round its mast floated softly along the water, laughter and sweet music sounding from the prow. Happily for Cato's peace of mind, he died before the casino, with its cachucha, or can-can, or whatever it might have been, was introduced, and before the fashions of Asia had been added to those of Greece. But he lived long enough to see the Greco-maniacs triumphant. In earlier, and happier days, he had been able to expel two philosophers from Rome, but now he saw them swarming in the streets, with their ragged cloaks and greasy beards, and everywhere obtaining seats as domestic chaplains at the tables of the rich. He could now do no more than protest in his bitter and extravagant style against the corruption of the age. He prophesied that as soon as Rome had thoroughly imbibed the Greek philosophy, she would lose the empire of the world. He declared that Socrates was a prating, seditious fellow who well deserved his fate, and he warned his son to beware of the Greek physicians, for the Greeks had laid a plot to kill all the Romans, and the doctors had been deputed to put it into execution with their medicines. Cato was a man of an iron body which was covered with honourable scars, a loud harsh voice, greenish-grey eyes, foxy hair, and enormous teeth resembling tusks. His face was so hideous and forbidding that, according to one of the hundred epigrams that were composed against him, he would wander forever on the banks of the Styx, for hell itself would be afraid to let him in. He was distinguished as a general, as an orator, and as an author, but he pretended that it was his chief ambition to be considered a good farmer. He lived in a little cottage on his Sabine estate, and went in the morning to practice as an advocate in the neighbouring town. When he came home, he stripped to the skin, and worked in the fields with his slaves, drinking, as they did, the vinegar water, or thin, sour wine. In the evening he used to boil the turnips for his supper, while his wife made the bread. Although he cared so little about external things, if he gave an entertainment, and the slaves had not cooked it, or waited to his liking, he used to chastise them with leather thongs. It was one of his maxims to sell his slaves when they grew old, the worst cruelty that a slave owner can commit. For my part, says Plutarch, I should never have the heart to sell an ox that had grown old in my service, still less my aged slave. Cato's old-fashioned virtue paid very well. He gratified his personal antipathies, and obtained the character of the people's friend. He was always impeaching the great men of his country, and was himself impeached nearly fifty times. The man who sets up as being much better than his age is always to be suspected and Cato is perhaps the best specimen of the rugged hypocrite and austere charlatan that history can produce. This censor of morals bred slaves for sale. He made laws against usury, 
and then turned usurer himself. He was always preaching about the vanity of riches and wrote an excellent work on the best way of getting rich. He degraded a Roman knight for kissing his wife in the daytime in the presence of his daughter, and he himself, while he was living under his daughter-in-law's roof, bestowed his favours on one of the servant girls of the establishment, and allowed her to be impudent to her young mistress. Old age, he once said to a grey-headed debauchee, has deformities enough of its own. Do not add to it the deformity of vice. At the time of the amorous affair above mentioned, Cato was nearly eighty years of age. On the other hand, he was a most faithful servant to his country. He was a truly religious man, and his god was the commonwealth of Rome. Nor was he destitute of the domestic virtues, though sadly deficient in that respect. He used to say that those who beat their wives and children laid their sacrilegious hands on the holiest things in the world. He educated his son himself, taught him to box, to ride, and to swim, and wrote out for him a history of Rome in large pothook characters, that he might become acquainted at an early age with the great actions of the ancient Romans. He was as careful in what he said before the child as if he had been in the presence of the Vestal Virgins. This Cato was the man on whom rests chiefly the guilt of the murder which we must now relate. In public and in private, by direct denunciation, by skilful innuendo, by appealing to the fears of some and to the interests of others, he laboured incessantly towards his end. Once after he had made a speech against Carthage in the Senate, he shook the skirt of his robe, as if by accident, and some African figs fell upon the ground. When all had looked and wondered at their size and beauty, he observed that the place where they grew was only three days' sail from Rome. It is possible that Cato was sincere in his alarms, for he was one of the few survivors of the Second Punic War. He had felt the arm of Carthage in its strength. He could remember that day when even Romans had turned pale, when the old men covered their faces with their mantles, when the young men clambered on the walls, when the women ran wailing round the temples of the gods, praying for protection and sweeping the shrines with their hair, when a cry went forth that Hannibal was at the gates, when a panic seized the city, when the people, collecting on the roofs, flung tiles at Roman soldiers, believing them to be the enemy already in the town, when all over the Campania could be seen the smoke of ricks and farmhouses mounting in the air, and the wild Berber horsemen driving herds of cattle to the Punic camp. Besides, it was his theory that the annihilation of foreign powers was the building up of Rome. He used to boast that in his peninsular campaign he had demolished a Spanish town a day. There were in the Senate many enlightened men who denied that the prosperity of Rome could be assisted by the destruction of trading cities, and Carthage was defended by the Scipio party. But the influence of the banker class was employed on Cato's side. They wanted every penny that was spent in the Mediterranean world to pass through their books. Carthage and Corinth were rival firms which it was to their profit to destroy. These money-mongers possessed great power in the Senate and the State, and at last they carried the day. It was privately resolved that Carthage should be attacked as soon as an opportunity occurred. Thus, in Africa and in Italy, Massinissa and Cato prepared the minds of men for the deed of blood. It was as if the furies of the slaughtered dead had entered the bodies of those two old men and kept them alive beyond their natural term. 
Cato had done his share. It was now Massinissa's turn. As soon as he was assured that he would be supported by the Romans, he struck again and again the wretched people who were afraid to resist and who yet soon saw that it would be folly to submit. It was evident that Rome would not interfere. If Massinissa was not checked, he would strip them of their cornfields. He would starve them to death. The war party at last prevailed. The city was fortified and armed. Massinissa descended on their villas, their gardens and their farms. Driven to despair, the Carthaginians went forth to defend the crops which their own hands had sown. A great battle was fought, and Massinissa was victorious. On a hill near the battlefield sat a young Roman officer, Scipio Emilianus, a relative of the man who had defeated Hannibal. He had been sent over from Spain for a squadron of elephants, and arrived in Massinissa's camp at this interesting crisis. The news of the battle was soon dispatched by him to Rome. The treaty had now been broken, and the Senate declared war. The Carthaginians fell into an agony of alarm. They were now so broken down that a vassal of Rome could defeat them in the open field. What had they to expect in a war with Rome? Ambassadors were at once dispatched with full powers to obtain peace, peace at any price, from the terrible Republic. The envoys presented themselves before the Senate. They offered the submission of the Carthaginians, who formally disowned the act of war, who had put the two leaders of the war party to death and who desired nothing but the alliance and goodwill of Rome. The answer which they received was this. Since the Carthaginians are so well advised, the Senate returns them their country, their laws, their sepulchres, their liberties, and their estates. If they will surrender three hundred sons of their senators as hostages, and obey the orders of the consuls. The Roman army had already disembarked. When the consuls landed on the coast, no resistance was made. They demanded provisions. Then the city gates were opened, and long trains of bullocks and mules laden with corn were driven to the Roman camp. The hostages were demanded. Then the senators brought forth their children and gave them to the city. The city gave them to the Romans. The Romans placed them on board the galleys, which at once spread their sails and departed from the coast. The roofs of the palaces of Carthage were crowded with women who watched these receding sails with straining eyes and outstretched arms. Never more would they see their beloved ones. Yet they would not perhaps have grieved so much at the children leaving Carthage had they known what was to come. The city gates again opened. The Senate sent its council to the Roman camp. A company of venerable men clad in purple with golden chains presented themselves at headquarters and requested to know what were the orders of the consuls. They were told that Carthage must disarm. They returned to the city, and at once sent out to the camp all their fleet material and artillery, all the military stores in the public magazines, and all the arms that could be found in the possession of private individuals. Three thousand catapults and two hundred thousand sets of armour were given up. They again came out to the camp. The military council was assembled to receive them. The old men saluted the Roman ensigns and bowed low to the consuls, placing their hands upon their breasts. The orders of the consuls, they said, had been obeyed. Was there anything more that their lords had to command? The senior consul rose up and said that there was something more. He was instructed by the Roman Senate to inform the senators of Carthage that the city must be destroyed, but that, in accordance with the promise of the Roman Senate, 
their country, their laws, their sepulchres, their liberties and their estates would be preserved, and they might build another city. Only it must be without walls, and at a distance of at least ten miles from the sea. The Carthaginians cast themselves upon the ground, and the whole assembly fell into confusion. The consul explained that he could exercise no choice. He had received his orders, and they must be carried out. He requested them to return and apprise their fellow townsmen. Some of the senators remained in the Roman camp. Others ventured to go back. When they drew near the city, the people came running out to meet them and asked them the news. They answered only by weeping and beating their foreheads and stretching out their hands and calling on the gods. They went on to the Senate House. The members were summoned, an enormous crowd gathered in the marketplace. Presently the doors opened, the senators came forth, and the orders of the consuls were announced. And then there rose in the air a fierce despairing shriek, a yell of agony and rage. The mob rushed through the city and tore limb from limb the Italians who were living in the town. With one voice it was resolved that the city should be defended to the last they would not so tamely give up their beautiful Carthage, their dear and venerable home beside the sea. If it was to be burned to ashes, their ashes should be mingled with it, and their enemies as well. All the slaves were set free. Old and young, rich and poor, worked together day and night forging arms. The public buildings were pulled down to procure timber and metal. The women cut off their hair to make strings for the catapults. A humble message was sent in true oriental style to the consul, praying for a little time. Days passed, and Carthage gave no signs of life. Tired of waiting, the consul marched towards the city, which he expected to enter like an open village. He found, to his horror, the gates closed and the battlements bristling with artillery. Carthage was strongly fortified, and was held by men who had abandoned hope. The siege lasted more than three years. Cato did not live to see his darling wish fulfilled. Massinissa also died while the siege was going on, and bitter was his end. The policy of the Romans had been death to all his hopes. His dream of a great African empire was dissolved. He sullenly refused to cooperate with the Romans. It was his Carthage which they had decreed should be levelled to the ground. There was a time when it seemed as if the great city would prove itself to be impregnable. The siege was conducted with small skill or vigour by the Roman generals. More than one reputation found its grave before the walls of Carthage. But when Scipio Emilianus obtained the command, he at once displayed the genius of his house. Perceiving that it would be impossible to subdue the city, as long as smuggling traders could run into the port with provisions, he constructed a stone mole across the mouth of the harbour. Having thus cut off the city from the sea, he pitched his camp in the neck of the Isthmus, for Carthage was built on a peninsula, and so cut it off completely from the land. For the first time in the siege, the blockade was complete. The city was enclosed in a stone and iron cage. The Carthaginians in their fury brought forth the prisoners whom they had taken in their sallies and hurled them headlong from the walls. There were many in the city who protested against this outrage. They were denounced as traitors. A reign of terror commenced. The men of the moderate party were crucified in the streets. The hideous idol of Moloch found victims that day. Children were placed on its outstretched and downward sloping hands and rolled off them into the fiery furnace which was burning at its feet. 
nor were there wanting patriots who sacrificed themselves upon the altars that the gods might have compassion upon those who survived. But among these pestilence and famine had begun to work, and the sentinels could hardly stand to their duty on the walls. Gangs of robbers went from house to house and tortured people to make them give up their food. Mothers fed upon their children. A terrible disease broke out. Corpses lay scattered in the streets. Men who were burying the dead fell dead upon them. Others dug their own graves and lay down in them to die. Houses, in which all had perished, were used as public sepulchres and were quickly filled. And then, as if the birds of the air had carried the news, it became known all over northern Africa that Carthage was about to fall. And then, from the dark and dismal corners of the land, from the wasted frontiers of the desert, from the snow lairs and caverns of the Atlas, there came creeping and crawling to the coast the most abject of the human race. Black, naked, withered beings, their bodies covered with red paint, their hair cut in strange fashions, their language composed of muttering and whistling sounds. By day they prowled round the camp and fought with the dogs for the offal and the bones. If they found a skin they roasted it on ashes and danced round it in glee, wriggling their bodies and uttering abominable cries. When the feast was over they cowered together on their hams and fixed their gloating eyes upon the city and expanded their blubber lips and showed their white fangs. At last the day came. The harbour walls were carried by assault, and the Roman soldiers pressed into the narrow streets which led down to the waterside. The houses were six or seven storeys high, and each house was a fortress which had to be stormed. Lean and haggard creatures, with eyes of flame, defended their homesteads from room to room, onwards, upwards, to the death struggle on the broad, flat roof. Day followed day, and still that horrible music did not cease. The shouts and songs of the besiegers, the yells and shrieks of the besieged, the moans of the wounded, the feeble cries of children divided by the sword. Night followed night, and still the deadly work went on. There was no sleep and no darkness. The Romans lighted houses that they might see to kill. Six days passed thus and only the citadel was left. It was a steep rock in the middle of the town. A temple of the God of Healing crowned its summit. The rock was covered with people who could be seen extending their arms to heaven and uniting with one another in the last embrace. Their piteous lamentations, like the cries of wounded animals, ascended in the air, and behind the iron circle which enclosed them could be heard the crackling of the fire and the dull boom of falling beams. The soldiers were weary with smiting. They were filled with blood. Nine-tenths of the inhabitants had been already killed. The people on the rock were offered their lives. They descended with bare hands and passed under the yoke. Some of them ended their days in prison. The greater part were sold as slaves. But in the temple, on the summit of the rocky hill, nine hundred Roman deserters, for whom there could be no pardon, stood at bay. The trumpets sounded, the soldiers, clashing their bucklers with their swords and uttering the war cry, Allah, la advanced to the attack. Of a sudden, the sea of steel recoiled, the standards reeled, a long tongue of flame sprang forth upon them through the temple door. The deserters had set the building on fire, 
that they might escape the ignominious death of martial law. A man dressed in purple rushed out of the temple with an olive branch in his hand. This was Hasdrubal, the commander-in-chief, and the Robespierre of the reign of terror. His life was given him. He would do for the triumph. And, as he bowed the knee before the consul, a woman appeared on the roof of the temple with two children in her arms. She poured forth some scornful words upon her husband and then plunged with her children into the flames. Carthage burned seventeen days before it was entirely consumed. Then the ploughers passed over the soil to put an end in legal form to the existence of the city. House might never again be built, corn might never again be sown upon the ground where it had stood. A hundred years afterwards, Julius Caesar founded another Carthage and planted a Roman colony therein. But it was not built upon the same spot. The old site remained accursed. It was a browsing ground for cattle, a field of blood. When, recently, the remains of the city walls were disinterred, they were found to be covered with a layer of ashes from four to five feet deep, filled with half-charred pieces of wood, fragments of iron, and projectiles. End of section 14